Welcome to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Lash. I'm the head of public policy here at the IEA. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question to a top political and economic thinker. Today's question, should unions striking be restricted? This week, more than 100,000 Royal Mail workers joined the picket lines after going on strike in a dispute on pay and conditions. This comes amid major strikes on the railways, at the Felixstowe port, among Scottish bin workers and criminal barristers. There are also threats to strikes among teachers, junior doctors and even nurses. To discuss whether strikes are restricted and broader questions about the state of labour market, I'm very excited to be joined by Len Shackleton who is the Editorial and Research Fellow here at the IEA, as well as a Professor of Economics at Buckingham University. Len has written dozens of publications on labour economics, most recently, Summertime Blues, Union Strikes, and The Law in 2022 for the IEA. Len, thank you very much for joining the podcast. My pleasure. So Len, what do you think is driving this upsurge in strike activity? It's been a long time since we've had strike activity on this scale, and you can see a, a number of factors uh, coming together, which which will have led to this. Uh, clearly, the 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 period, uh, the, co- the the lockdown period, was one when everything was out of joint. Clearly, uh, pay increases were not a major um, consideration on on the government's mind. Um, so there's a backlog of of issues which have been built up. Uh, you've got obviously uh, Ukraine you, and and all the the uh, pressures on on uh, inflation, which that are causing. Um, you've also got, I think, uh, that there has been a sort of whiff of this type of activity in other countries as well, where you begin to see, for example, the in the United States, the unionization of uh, previously barren areas like Starbucks and so on. Um, so there is perhaps a, a kind of zeitgeist which favours strikes of this kind. And uh, that's what we're seeing at the moment with everybody trying to get on board. But a point I have made, and I will make again, is that most of this activity is in the public sector or the quasi-public sector. That is to say, things which were once part of the public sector, but which, which were privatised and have legacy high levels of unionism. Um, like, uh, for example, Royal Mail or the railways, right? Um, if you look more broadly, then the story is that unionization is at its lowest level since we started keeping records in the same way, down at 23, 24% of the workforce. Um, and if you look at the areas of really low paid people, uh, people in retailing, in, in some areas of manufacturing, farming, and things like this, then of course these people are not on strike. They're not organised in the same way. So it is a uh, it is specific to a part of the workforce. I think. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that only thirteen percent of private sector workers these days are members of a union, which which means it's very much a disproportional public sector phenomenon. And I, and I think that yeah, raises many the of question. those many of those, of course, are in this quasi public yes. sector I mentioned, like like the railways and so on. Yeah, they, exactly. They normally be in the private sector, but. Yeah. So I, I, I suppose then what do you make of the comparisons that we're now getting uh, between the summer of discontent and the famous winter of discontent and all this talk about general strikes? Does that seem viciously unrealistic to you as it does to me on the basis that we, we don't have a mass unionised workforce? Yeah. Um, 
of course, the, 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 back in, in the winter of discontent, not all parts of the workforce were out. Um, and it wasn't a general strike in the sense that it had been in 1926. It was rather a series of, of strikes, one after another, um, which you seem to be in a situation where there was always a strike on. If it wasn't, uh, if it wasn't the, the railways, it'd be the buses. If it wasn't the buses, it'd be the miners. If it wasn't the miners, it, you know, it, it, it's that kind of thing. And I think that's more of a danger uh, for the moment than the idea of a, a political general strike, which is illegal, actually. And I think the TUC would be very, very reluctant to call a general strike. Um, because of all the consequences which we'll be likely to follow from that. It's worth unpacking then why there has been this fall in unionisation. Why have the unions become a less important part of of the British economy, despite all the attention that they continue to get in the media? Well, of course, the the people on the left say, oh, it's all down to Thatcherism. And it's certainly true that, I mean, I've written on this, that uh, between... Uh, coming into power in, in, uh, in, in at the end of the 70s and uh, going out of power in in, in what in, in 1997, uh, the the the, um, uh, the Conservatives under both Mrs Thatcher and uh, John Major passed, I say, seven or eight pieces of legislation which severely restricted uh, unionism. Uh, as it had been practiced, got rid of the closed shop, for example. Five million people were in the closed shop in 1979. Five million people. You had to be in a union to to, to take the job. It's an extraordinary situation. Uh, That's all gone. But I wouldn't place all that much um, emphasis on on Thatcherism uh, and and, and, and that legislation, because lots of other things were going on. The decline in unionization is quite common across major Western countries, France, Germany, United States, and so on. They've all seen similar falls, and it's to do with the change, the changing structure of the economy is one thing. Um, you know, you don't have these concentrations of workers in particular locations like miners or steel workers, which are historically, or dockers, you know, which were uh, historically concentrations of large numbers of people who lived together, lived in the same area, had this kind of collective solidarity, which I think has has disappeared. Uh, We're in an increasingly weightless economy where, uh, where, you know, we're selling services to each other across the internet and so on, rather than digging them out of the ground or building them in factories or whatever it may be. So there's that kind of change. There's also, I think, more individualistic lifestyles. Um, there's, uh, in Britain at least, there's a much more diverse workforce. Uh, I mean, a thing which hasn't been um, noted until fairly recently, I think, is that now more female trade unionists than there are male trade unionists. <laughs> and when you consider that uh, historically the, the, the big powerful unions were almost 100% male macho organisations, say dockers, miners, railways, etc., in fact, railways are an interesting throwback there. They've got three dinosaur trade union leaders in Aslef, uh, RMT and TSSA. Um, you know, uh, they're very unusual. Increasingly, uh, union leaders are female and it's a different kind of uh, set of issues which, uh, which they're concerned with. So there are many factors which have led to the uh, decline of unionism, I think, in this country. Yeah, I mean, I also see it as a, as a bit of a phenomenon of the same reason why 
uh, Marxism and communism was never that successful because the, the the free market system managed to lift people's quality of life quite substantially. And a lot of people haven't been members of a union, haven't seen a need to join a union because work and pay and conditions um, have gotten and quality of life has, has gotten better. Whilst when the when unions first established, there probably was a much stronger case um, that the that, that labor was sweating that that there was a need to have some bargaining power against um, employers who who were not as generous to their employees as as now is the case in a more competitive and open labor market. I think that that's definitely an issue. Though you should also bear in mind that there has been one heck of a lot of labor market regulation in the last 40 or 50 years. So that, um, I mean, for example, to take minimum wages, which uh, are now almost universally accepted. There are a few people who still, uh, including people at the IEA, who still <laughs> are very skeptical of the idea of a minimum wage. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's obviously well established. I mean, it, it's not well known. I once had an argument about, with Francis O'Grady about this, that the trade unions originally opposed the idea of a minimum wage. You know, they, want, they, they wanted uh, unions to negotiate pay. And I, I think they were fearing exactly what has happened in the sense that the, the government intervention replaces many of the things which trade unions were given credit for. Now, when regulation seems to happen with virtually every year, the labour market, more and more rules are applied to a maternity leave, uh, all sorts of things to do with discrimination and so forth. The role of unions in all this, uh, from the point of view of an individual worker, uh, seems much less important. Yeah, I mean, it, it's often forgotten that the UK didn't have a national uh, minimum wage until the late 90s, and it was a new labour phenomenon and previous Labour governments had rejected the idea and even in other countries even more extreme Germany didn't have a minimum wage until 2015 more or less for similar reasons that, that the unions um, were against the idea of not having a kind of collective bargaining uh, process but I just want to move on to uh, the kind of justifications for the strike so I think we're hearing a lot of rhetoric these days more or less that uh, workers aren't getting a fair share of profitable businesses um, and they need higher incomes to withstand inflation uh, and therefore uh, because the businesses aren't offering that inflation level um, pay increases, uh, the unions are completely justified to strike. In fact, everyone should strike because we're not getting our dues from uh, the, the, the profiteering businesses who are putting up prices and, and benefiting at the moment. It, do, do you see any, any truth in that, that as a matter of a, a claim? Well, one of the things which uh, needs to be stated is that profits go up and down. And, uh, for example, in the, in the rail dispute that's been uh, mentioned, particular train operating companies who've made a lot of money this year or last year or whatever, what's not taken into account is they're making stonking great loss the two previous years. And this is often the case, of course, that profits are a will of the wisp. They disappear uh, very quickly. And indeed, you know, that's probably a good thing because it suggests there's more competition or that tastes are changing and, and, and the, the, the economy is adapting to this and so forth. So um, the fact that profits have gone up only provides a justification for increasing wages, to my mind at least, if wages can fall when profits fall. And that clearly isn't what's being planned here. This is a, a ratchet effect that wages can only ever go up. Um, they, it may be in a kind of different model you could imagine, even if not implement, if there was a kind of uh, profit sharing uh, enterprise or something like that, where workers received 
a proportion of profits and so forth. But those types of, uh, of institution have not been very successful because people prefer the certainty of a wage rather than a variable thing. And you can understand why. I mean, yeah, I think there's also a, a number of false claims. I mean, I, I did a debate this week against Owen Jones, who kept in making this claim that uh, 60% of the reason of price rises is because of profiteering businesses. Now that's on the face of it, something that sounds a little bit ridiculous because we know that the businesses also have increased costs as a result of other um, inflationary pressures. But if you even go back to where that stat seems to come from, uh, it, it's more or less based on figures that, that don't correlate with the Office for National Statistics data. And if you look at the profit share as a proportion of the GDP, whether or not you like those six very much, that's actually not going up as much as income share. So it doesn't seem like if, if you look at the statistics that it is profiting businesses that a lot of um, and a lot of the businesses that where the unions want the increased um, incomes or increased wages don't have massive profits to share. I mean, the, the railways have fewer passengers than in the past. They're now in, increasingly effectively subsidized by the taxpayer. So what effectively is going on here a lot of these public sector unions is they're making a claim on the the taxpayer they're making a claim on you and i um for higher wages and that may be justifiable in certain cases you know you might say nurses are have been historically underpaid but it doesn't seem the kind of broad-based inflation busting pay rises are particularly affordable for the government and for taxpayers without um higher taxes that would hurt the economy or more debt well, you're absolutely right. And there's there's no sort of iron law that says that wage, money wages should adjust the rate of inflation. And indeed, uh, when you think about it, uh, this would, uh, if, if this was implemented rigorously, then there would be no change in the structure of wages over time. Uh, and, and this, of course, you know, you, you, you know, I keep being reminded of how old I am, but you know, when, when I first started teaching economics, uh, one of my colleagues who joined me had been working for the Prices and Incomes Board, right? Uh, which uh, <laughs> this is ancient history in the in the price and wage controls, good, the good old days. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, you know where where firms had to apply to raise their prices, and you know uh, union claims had to be measured against some some norm, and special cases could be made on the basis of productivity gains and so forth. And there was a huge bureaucracy which did nothing but adjudicate on these claims. And, you know, that is almost the direction in which some people want us to head with price controls, with wage controls and so on. And, you know, these people should read a bit of history. If they weren't around at the time, just learn from, from people who were around at the time. Uh, there's lots of documentation of the failure of the Prices and Incomes Board, the failure of national planning and so forth. These things are not, you know, we don't have to learn these lessons over and over again. <laughs> well, no, I think the truth is we do have to state these lessons again and again. And the key point that uh, the unions are people calling for inflationary, uh, inflation level pay rises miss out is the fact that we are actually poorer as a country today than we were six months ago because of the higher costs to import gas. So if, if we try to put up wages at the same level as inflation, it's just going to be probably more inflationary or lead to higher levels of unemployment because it, it wouldn't be affordable to the economy. The, the sad truth is that our wages probably have to go down if, if our, and our ability to buy things probably has to go down because we have to dedicate more resources to electricity, which is tragic and awful. Um, and all you can really do, I suppose, is redistribute some of the costs, of, but you can't 
without magical productivity improvements uh, change yeah, that situation. I, I mean, this, this is a kind of shock to the economy, which has macroeconomic and microeconomic consequences. And it's very difficult to buck these kind of effects. Uh, you could, you know, uh, what, what, what tends to happen if we had more and more uh, inflationary wage claims settled and so forth, that we, we would create a, a sort of mini wage price spiral to which the consequence would be that we'd have to drastically tighten monetary policy, shove up interest rates, perhaps to the levels which people, you know, nowadays would feign to at seeing, you know, 15%, 17% uh, uh, interest rates, which would be, you know, that would really be painful uh, to the economy, to everybody in the economy. And the fact that you were in a strong union wouldn't really protect you from that, I'm afraid. Indeed. So I just want to think more about, I suppose, the philosophical questions behind striking. So I think there's this there's this tension when it comes to striking about whether or not um, striking workers are, are morally righteous in the first instance and should be legally allowed to disrupt public services, things like the railways or healthcare or court cases. Now, in, in the law as it stands, of course, uh, there, are, there are certain professions that cannot go on strike, be it um, army or the police. Um, do you think... There should be, I suppose, the going from a libertarian perspective, you might make an argument that, well, of course, you should have a freedom to withdraw your labor and therefore striking. Um, although we might disagree with their particular cause uh, at certain times, they, they should be legally allowed to do it. Or you have the view that, in fact, there should be limitations on striking because it's given a legal privilege of the fact that you can't sack a striking worker if they follow procedure. Well, first on the issue of strikes, uh... I, th I think uh, the right to strike is a, a difficult thing to argue against, uh, but strikes have consequences uh, and therefore uh, we've always placed some kind of restrictions on strikes because what a strike is, is a, a unilateral breach of contract. Uh, there is also something called a lockout, which we haven't heard much of uh, in recent years, but lockout- but When the bosses go on strike, yeah. Well, that's the, they just lock out the workforce until mm. they take a pay cut, right? Um, which is some uh, resonance with the idea of fire and rehire, which uh, is also something perhaps we could talk about in a minute. Um, but yeah, there have always been restrictions on strikes. And as, you, as I point out in the paper you mentioned, as, and as you just pointed out, these, these differ from uh, groups of workers between, within an economy, but also between countries as well. And uh, we get things like uh, in Germany, for example, civil, civil servants aren't allowed to strike. Um, and that, uh, that definition of a civil service includes university officials and some groups of teachers, for example. Um, I, I, yeah, Germany isn't a, hard, a particularly harsh labor market. You know, it's, it's, it has, in many ways, it's more regulated than, than the UK's labor market. Um, but there are plenty of examples, but is that the way, right, right way to go about it? I think certainly the government needs to think about this. If we're going to find persistent strikes like this, then maybe we need to do a bit of redrawing at the margin. But of course, this was last attempted in 2016 uh, in the Trade Union Act, um, which uh, was a, a Cameron thing, when uh, the, the, the conditions under which a strike could be agreed were made slightly more rigorous, um, but it in fact hasn't stopped. Uh, the, you know, unions are still able to get majorities even under the tighter rules um, than there were previously. So I think if you do bring in these kind of, the, these kind of changes, 
uh, you've got to be sure that they will be effective. There's no point in bringing in things because you just annoy the unions. You, the general public will think you're horrible and they won't even be effective. You know? So you do need to think about that. But I think we, we're some distance away from, from that kind of situation. Um, I think they need to concentrate on, on strikes one at a time. If you take something like the railways, for example, there was a clearly different set of issues there from, let's say, nurses and doctors, right? Um, the railways, I think that's just got to be beaten, that strike, because essentially what they're calling for is an increase in pay against a situation where the market for railways has fundamentally changed post-COVID and where there's an absolutely massive drop in, 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 in revenue. That wouldn't be too bad in a sense if the, if the unions were prepared to adjust their behaviour. But no, they won't. They want, they want to say there should be no changes, in effect, to things like uh, rosters. And that's been an issue since the 1910s, incidentally, on the railways. Uh, no change to the idea of driver-only operations. I go into Fenchurch Street on the railway from Shoebury Ness. It's a driver-only operation. Why on earth? Uh, other parts of the network are not also able to do this is just not clear to them. Then there's a the whole business of ticket officers, which has been talked about, the redeployment of maintenance workers and so on. All these things are absolutely essential. And if, uh, you know, to buy the, wor the workers off, not confront those kind of issues, I think would be really foolish of the Department for Transport, which is what it amounts to. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost a similar situation when it comes to the, the postage union, where yes. as much as it's much as it's about pay and, and there are demands for increased pay, that Royal Mail has often increased pay. But some of, at least some of that is conditional on whether or not they're willing to actually uh, move from a system of handwritten timesheets, whether or not they're willing to be required to work on Sundays because Royal Mail is now just much as a package delivery organisation. It needs to compete with non-unionised um, delivery companies uh, and, and all sorts of other automation in individual post offices that requires approval. Uh, apparently, you still need approval from the union to put in an, an automated sorting machine, for example. They're very archaic and old-fashioned. And there's some suggestion, of course, that uh, they could rip up the, they could rip up the agreement and effectively rehire their workforce. Um, and that was obviously that was a bit controversially uh, earlier this year when it came um, to the ferries. What do you make of that as a, as a strategy? Well, if if the unions are going to go on strike, uh, we should be able to withdraw. Uh, their ability to work as well, uh, if, if you're a boss? I think that is a, a sort of nuclear option, which, uh, you know, will to draw attention to the fact that it's possible. I think uh, at this stage, it would be foolish to go about, you know, waving the big stick. I think some of these issues do have to be resolved. The government should be firm um, it's essentially the government which backs up the railways, for example. It's government which pays for the civil servants and all, 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 all the public sector workers and so forth. The Royal Mail, I think um, they should stand back from for the moment. I think that's got to be resolved within uh, the Royal Mail and there are ways of doing that. But um, we shouldn't sort of get the government to lay down rules about something like that, which is not directly responsible for. There is an attempt by the unions to drag all these previously privatised enterprises back into the public sector. And the government should say, no, we washed our hands of Royal Mail and, and they've got to sort it out in a way. I mean, that is effectively happening, though, in the railways, is it not, with the, the Great British Railways, although 
uh, with, with the, the franchise system has been abolished, yeah. they've yeah. effectively renationalized it. They're just contracting out some of the operations, which means when the unions say, well, the, the Department for Transport are the only ones who can decide whether or not the train companies have enough revenue to pay us higher salaries. They're not completely wrong, are they? Because no, no, the government is directing wrong. it. And, and this was the, the you know, I, I criticised the creation of Great British Railways at the time because I knew this is exactly what would happen. We had 30, 30 years or so when strikes were only local with a particular company and so forth. The idea of national strikes is something which has emerged because we'd effectively renationalized the railways. And that's what we shouldn't do with Royal Mail. We should keep uh, very much at arm's length. Um, yeah, it's not- it, 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 it almost kind of reminds me of the phenomenon of how hostage negotiation works, which is the government will never negotiate if, if um, a company's employee gets kidnapped because the, the, they know that the person who kidnaps them, if they're negotiating with the government, the government has unlimited funds, whilst uh, uh, the, the person who's negotiating on behalf of a, a company um, obviously has very much more limited funds um, so that they can make a much bigger claim uh, if, or if you're a, a hostage taker. Um, if you if you negotiate with government, um, the other the other though um, solution from the government on this is is this this idea of minimum service requirements that effectively even if you go on strike you still have to provide twenty percent of the service or, or thereabouts. What do you make of those kind of requirements? Is that you know forced labor equivalent of slavery or is that a, a, a reasonable limitation on a um, the ability of a public sector union effectively to strike? I think this is one of these areas where um, it's not worth the hassle of doing much about it because we already get about 20% of the the trains running during strikes because they redeploy non-union workers and management and so on to get the thing going. Um, It would create a lot of uh, animosity. Uh, Again, I I don't know whether it's worth the political hassle of going down that route. I mean, I'd say if you want to uh, make uh, big changes to uh, strike laws, uh, then you've got to think through, is this really going to have an effect or is it just noise? And I, I'm afraid I think the, the, that would rather like, for example, the idea of being in, able to bring in a, um, uh, uh, workers to replace people. That works in some situations, don't work on the railways, of course, where you can't just kind of draft in huge quantities of people to do the signalling and drive the trains and so on. Absolutely no point to that. So you have to think carefully. If you're going to change the laws, then you have to think: What am I going to achieve by doing it? Yeah, there was there was a famous uh, Australian case in the '90s where there was um, big striking on on the docks, and there was this rumor that went around. I don't know if it was ever true, but the they the um the dock companies started uh, training secret dock workers in Dubai that were going to fly over to to replace the striking workers. I guess it's it's not completely impossible. Um, but uh, interestingly, conceptually, uh, uh, something that I guess they could do if they were organised enough. Yeah. Well, um, on on that note uh, about um, the slightly pessimistic, the, there's not much you can do unless you think about it pretty deeply uh, on the, all these union strikes. Um, I, I want to thank very much uh, Professor Shackleton for joining the IEA podcast. Um, Len is the editorial and research fellow at the IEA as well as a professor of economics at Buckingham University. Uh, Thank you very much.